This evening I'd like to talk about the art of appearing and the art of disappearing. We might also look at it, look at it another way of this dilemma that is sometimes there in whether to be visible in this world or to be invisible. We might call it the dilemma of being someone or being no one. It seems to me this theme of visibility and invisibility is actually a theme that runs through a whole lot of different areas of our lives. And it's almost like there's two versions of this. In one way, we can be visible in this world and be very free and very confident in that. And we can also be visible in this world and be very fearful, be very motivated by fear, have invisibility motivated by fear. We can have invisibility motivated by a great sense of freedom. There's two stories I'd like to reflect on, which to me are kind of archetypal stories around this theme of being someone or being no one. One of these stories is a theme of visibility and freedom. And it's a story that is really illustrated what is in the Zen tradition called the ox herding picture. And the Ox Herding Pictures is a series of stories and poems that really trace the whole development or the whole deepening of a spiritual journey from the point where many of us begin, where we feel uncertain and somewhat confused about what we're doing and why we're doing it and yet at the same time drawn intuitively to this path or to this search. Now in the Oxharding pictures, those pictures or that, that whole series of pictures begins with the portrayal of a, a herdswoman or a herdsman who is illustrated or pictured as this very small and fragile figure, really kind of frail, in the midst of a huge, la- a huge wilderness, in the midst of a vast landscape. And it shows this herdsman and this herdsman taking their very first, very uncertain and very tentative steps to understand what it means to be free. And then as the pictures and the poems kind of unfold, it shows the way in which this journey or this, this path goes through these really so many different stages, times of difficulty, times of challenge, times of breakthrough, times when the ox, which represents freedom that the herdswoman or husband is seeking, sometimes there's the attempt to subdue it, sometimes the attempt to run away from it. And the journey shows that the herdswoman and the husband beginning to find their way through this wilderness. Until this very last picture, which shows the completion of the journey. 
And in this last picture, it's really a picture of celebration, and it's entitled Re-Entering the Marketplace, or Re-Entering the World. And the herdswoman or the herdsman in this picture is, is very transformed. She or he is no longer this frail or fragile, uncertain person, but instead is portrayed as this kind of wild and ungovernable figure, larger than life, impossible to define, also impossible to ignore, and she or he re-enters the marketplace with this great smile upon their face and they're completely unconventional and fearless. And it's said of them they do not bow to the well-established ways of the world. And in this picture, the herdsman of the herdsman is, is pictured as bare-chested, bare-footed, their face is streaked with dust, their head is covered with ashes, and yet in front of them, all gates and all doors spring open, and even dead trees burst into bloom. And in this picture, this portrayal of this person who is now impossible to define, whose features and language changes, and yet they manifest or express in their being really a very powerful <coughs> fearlessness and sense of mystery and freedom. This is a picture of a great visibility. Here is someone who is something, perhaps impossible to define, but very, very impossible to ignore, very visible in the world. Another archetype or another figure, a story, which really kind of almost portrays the opposite, is in the story of the great Tibetan yogi Shantideva, who, as the story goes, was born into a royal family. But before being enthroned, he renounced his title and entered a monastery. And dis but despite these very auspicious beginnings of a royal birth and all the expectations that went with them, Shantideva actually really didn't excel at being a monk. In fact, his fellow monks said of him that Shantideva was proficient really only in three things, in eating, sleeping, and defecating. <laughs> and the, the abbot of the monastery decided that it was actually time to rid the monastery of all the parasites like Shantideva. So he set a public examination in which each of the monks would be required to <coughs> show their degree of understanding. And, of course, if they weren't up to scratch, they were going to be expelled. This was the deal. So, finally, it was Shanti Deva's turn to express his understanding. And much, apparently, to the amusement of the community, he asked them whether they would like him to speak about something known or something original. Now, the monks, of course, were sure they were in for a really good laugh here. So, they opted for the original. And much to their amazement, Shantideva proceeded to recite this thousand-verse poem spontaneously on the path of the Bodhisattva, the path of compassion. Not only was it totally inspiring, but when Shantideva came to the last line, he said, When neither something nor nothing remains in mind, there are no other alternatives. 
So without any object, there is complete peace. And as he spoke these words, his voice got fainter and fainter in his body. This is a story. He got more and more transparent. And finally he disappeared. He just disappeared. And of course, you know, much impressed, search parties were sent out, you know, because the monastery, of course, wanted to claim this monk as one of their own. And finally, he was tracked down to some remote corner of India, but he refused to return. And as the story describes this path of invisibility of being anonymous, you know, and as the story of Shantideva's life unfolded, you know, Tony got, you know, he worked as a palace guard, walking around with a wooden sword, you know, when he got found there, he disappeared again, he married, lived as a hermit. And the whole theme of Shantideva's life, it seems, is this kind of fostering of this transparency, this invisibility. Something perhaps embodied in the teaching of Chang Su, when he said, to, to be most effective in this world means to disappear. Shantideva said it, said it slightly differently. He said, even when I have done things for the sake of others, no sense of amazement or conceit arises. It is just like having said myself, I hope for nothing in return. <clears throat> and these two stories in different ways touch this kind of dilemma, this puzzlement that can run through our lives. Because in many ways we can see the richness and the wholeness of being visible in this world, being visible to other people, being visible to ourselves. I mean, if we reflect upon our own kind of life journey, we know that for us as a child to grow actually really did require that we were heard and seen and acknowledged in many, many different ways. To be visible, it means often in different ways to be able to speak and to be able to live and act with a sense of freedom and confidence and also to find in our lives that sense of respect and dignity and acknowledgement. Yet part of us can probably also sense the wonderful liberation of being invisible, of not being defined by anything, not being defined by anyone, not being defined by, you know, not being boxed in by any particular role or position or identity, and, and the freedom of not needing or depending upon anyone else for acknowledgement or affirmation or praise or acceptance in order for us to feel visible to ourselves. Are these two archetypes of being someone, being no one, being visible, being invisible, can very often coexist in our own heart and life, and they're worth exploring. And I think in the really deepest sense, they're not polarized at all. They're not contradictory at all, but actually are really in harmony. And actually, one of our greatest challenges in life really may be to discover both how to be someone and really how to be no one in a very free way.
if we are, look at the fearful version first in one way. If we are really intent in our lives and feel it's really necessary in our lives to be visible by being someone, you know, if our life is really geared around defining ourselves by what we achieve or the kind of position we have or the kind of role or image we present, you know, that kind of preoccupation and neediness is one that actually leaves us feeling increasingly vulnerable and fearful. Because we sense how that need to be someone, to see ourselves basically through the eyes of others, always means that we're dependent. Always means that we have to lean upon someone for certainty, for a definition, for affirmation and acknowledgement. It's almost like we need someone else to tell us who we are first before we believe it ourselves in order to feel certain in ourselves. And that kind of dependency, it does set us up always. It leaves us at risk of loss and devastation. Yet our craving for invisibility can also be really fearful. You know, and again, the fearfulness in invisibility gets expressed in, you know, great degrees of self-consciousness, the way that we put ourselves down, the kind of self-effacement, you know, oh, I can't do this, you know, or, you know, I, I, you know, that always kind of self, self-doubt. We're afraid of being noticed, afraid of being seen, afraid of being heard, afraid of being given attention. Now, at the same time, or perhaps you might say on another level of deeper understanding, we can be both visible and invisible in a very confident, very trusting and very assured way without any need to prove anything at all. In knowing how to rest in a sense of inner completeness and able then to use our bodies, use our minds, use our hearts as vehicles that communicate completeness. They don't communicate fear, they communicate completeness and a sense of freedom and creativity. And we can do that and be visible in the world and at the same time be quite invisible in that we don't lean upon anything or anyone, that we don't grasp hold of or hold on to any position or role, that there's not even anything fixed inside ourselves by which we define ourselves. Now, in meditation practice, in a very real way, this path of awakening is actually a path in which we become increasingly visible to ourselves, and yet at the same time, we learn how to disappear. That sounds strangely contradictory. That we learn how to be visible, we learn at the same time how to disappear. In our practice, we take this time to pay attention to the inner landscape of our bodies, our minds, our feelings, our thoughts. We pay attention to the landscape of all the different forces, all the different patterns that move us. And that very act of paying attention means that there is an emerging from the shadows and myths of unawareness and unconsciousness, 
really an understanding of who we are moves into the light of awareness. It's quite a remarkable process, this process of unfoldment, of unlayering. We actually learn to discover ourselves very often in very new ways. Now, when we continue to shine the light of sustained attention, really there's nothing that stays hidden inwardly. There are no assumptions about ourselves or about anything at all that remain unquestioned. We have no secrets from ourselves. And there is nowhere really to hide. Now, this is not always, of course, welcome news. You know, sometimes we're kind of appalled at ourselves, actually, when we, we sometimes see the, the incredible pettiness of our minds sometimes, or its obsessiveness, or, you know, its preoccupations, you know, its needs and its fussing in the world. Sometimes we discover, you know, previously unknown depths of resentment or greed, And yet there's a certain momentum and a certain inevitability in this process of unfoldment that once it's begun, it's very hard to turn back. You can't just decide, I'm going to stop being aware. You know, sometimes we like to do that. You know, you've heard that line, ignorance is bliss. And that line, I'm sure, was invented by someone who was actually in a process of unfoldment and actually didn't like what they saw. Mm-hmm. But it's hard to turn back. You know, it, it actually, it's hard to reverse the flow of the river. You know, I remember someone once being on long-term retreat here, you know, and they'd really decided they'd had enough of their mind, you know. Absolutely enough, at least for that day, you know. And so they decided they were going to go on this trip to Denbury to buy a chocolate bar. You know, this was a big deal. Maybe some of you have done this, I don't know. Anyway, they said, they recounted this, that all the way down the road, in this trip to met by the chocolate bar, this little voice that went with them that said, you really don't need to do this. Have you never heard about letting go? It's not going to be as good as you're projecting. So all the way up through the country lane, you know, right the way to the post office, you know, there was this little voice actually kind of mindfully reminding them that this was probably not the wisest choice. You know, they got to the post office, they bought the chocolate bar, they started to eat the chocolate bar, and all of that whole process was accompanied by this, well, it wasn't as good as you thought it was going to be, was it? You know, Was it worth it? You're now worn out, you've got to go back, no chocolate bar at the other end, same old mind. It's hard to just decide, I just turn it off. This process of becoming visible to ourselves is actually an incredibly important and necessary piece of the path of awakening. Sometimes it's painful, yeah. Sometimes it's unpleasant. But it's also the way in which we really learn about reclaiming authority and wisdom and freedom. And sometimes when we really listen very deeply inwardly, one of the things we discover is what an inheritance we carry of other people's voices. 
and values and expectations and needs and judgments that over time that we have absorbed and internalized to the extent where it's sometimes really difficult to discern whose voice we're listening to. Sometimes difficult to discern really what our own voice is, what is important to us. Sometimes it's hard to figure out what really is our story, our history, what we care about, how real the choices are that we're making. Sometimes hard to figure out what is really authentic or wise or true within ourselves. You know, one of the things I was really surprised at when I first began teaching You know, in the first retreats I was teaching, I was really amazed to discover that when I opened my mouth, I was actually talking with somebody else's voice, my teacher's voices, you know, their intonations, their expressions, even their stories, you know, their their way of, of, of communicating things, you know, and I was so amazed because in that time I actually knew what I wanted to say, and yet it was in this totally other voice. And actually one of the things, you know, for me that was important when I began teaching was that really the need to see how with much gratitude and appreciation I needed to liberate myself from my teachers. To discover actually what it meant actually to stand alone and to find what was actually true and authentic (coughs) for myself. Learning to find our own voice. Learning to find what is true for us, what is reliable for us. This is a great relief, a great liberation. Yet it is also a journey and a pathway. Because in learning to actually discern that inwardly, to listen well inwardly, We also sometimes discover our own confusions and our own fears, and some of them are about both being someone and about being no one. It's a very fearful place and a place of great sorrow to either have invisibility imposed upon us or to find ourselves seeking or adopting it through fear or through our own inner judgments and prohibitions. This place of imposed invisibility or adopted invisibility through fear is never a place of freedom, but it's always a place of great great pain. It's interesting that in our culture and in our world, to be no one To be invisible is actually equated with being somewhat less worthy, less lovable, less deserving of care or respect. Because if you reflect upon who the most invisible people in our culture are, the children sometimes, the elderly, the poor, the disabled, ethnic minorities, gay or lesbian, the homeless. How many of these kind of groups of people are made to be invisible 
And our seeing in that as somehow being less worthy, less lovable, less respected. To be invisible, to have that imposed invisibility, is really to have one's voice taken away and to have no voice that can be heard. In a way, and well, it is to be marginalized, to be ignored, to be dismissed, to have no place in the heart of another and no refuge. And this is, of course, with that invisibility comes just such tremendous loneliness and isolation, um, depression. It becomes, when we are not visible in the eyes of others, when we are somehow marginalized, it becomes really harder and harder to listen inwardly, to hear ourselves, or to see ourselves, when what we see reflected in the eyes of others is a kind of blankness. Many years ago, I did some volunteer work for the Cheshire, Leonard Cheshire Foundation. It's a foundation that works sometimes with people, or accommodates people who have some quite severe disability. And I made friends there with this man called Victor who'd been in one of these Leonard Cheshire homes since he was a child, and, or one home or another since he was a child and ended up in a Leonard Cheshire home. And I mean, he, he, Victor had actually the most amazing body one could ever encounter. I mean, absolutely nothing worked. Nothing worked, you know. And, you know, he had to be strapped into a wheelchair and every, every single part of the body was, you know, somehow twisted or, you know, distorted in some way. I mean, it was absolutely amazing body. And he was, had this really, really bright, bright mind. And he said that the one thing that he really longed for in his life was that people could touch him without fear. That for most of his life, because of his body, he was invisible. He was made invisible in most people's eyes. In this imposed place of marginalization or invisibility that sometimes happens, it really actually takes a remarkable courage and wisdom to find a voice to speak with, a body to act with, to be visible to oneself. Other moments, Invisibility is sought for. It doesn't come about through social sanctions or it's because it's imposed, but because of our own fears and the way that we can actually marginalize ourselves. I mean, we can carry with us our own history of, of self-denial and self-judgment and beliefs in unworthiness that compel us to seek the shadows in life because those are the places where we can feel more safe, where the shadows seem to be places that don't invite any more censure or judgment. And the painfulness of that kind of invisibility is sometimes seen actually to be less painful than the harshness that visibility seems to invite. This process of inner marginalization is a very subtle one. I mean, here we have some very interesting moments when we see the ways in which we flee from ourselves. Sometimes we 
flee into addiction. Sometimes we flee into fantasies or daydreams. Sometimes we flee to the notice board. Sometimes we flee into a kind of preoccupation with others. Have you noticed how easy it is to be interested in other people? You know, it can be endlessly fascinating. And imagine if we were as fascinated with ourselves as we are with other people. This would be quite a shift. Sometimes we flee into obsessions or thinking, sometimes into aversion. And there's a reason for that fleeing. You know, it's not just because it's pleasant or fun. Most of the time it's not. We flee sometimes because what we see being revealed is not always easy for us. And we, we fear that we might be overwhelmed or swept away by an ocean of pain. Now, I'm not saying that fleeing is always bad because, you know, this is not a practice of, you know, no pain, no gain. I mean, sometimes there's a wisdom, actually, in stepping back, pausing, finding more space. Yet when the fleeing is kind of habitually motivated by fear or aversion, actually we become invisible to ourselves in that moment. And in a very real way, in that moment, we kind of marginalize ourselves we dismiss ourselves in some way as being unworthy or contemptible. And that fleeing sets up a very tragic pattern in which we dispossess ourselves of the possibility of wholeness and authenticity, authenticity. Where we dispossess ourselves of discovering a way of being in which there's nothing to dismiss, nothing to fear. A lot of mindfulness practice is really very gently learning how not to flee. Very gently learning to find the ways in which we can very much befriend these difficult places in ourselves. We learn the skillful ways to bring a gentle attentiveness to those places and moments we habitually flee from. Something very powerful happens in that shift. We learn to reclaim authenticity. We learn to reclaim a sense of freedom. And one thing we never feel when we flee is free. Instead, mostly we feel very, very governed or very dominated or very defined by whatever memory or whatever feeling or whatever image is arising. This practice, then, is a process of unlayering and undoing these very tight, these very static images and beliefs that we hold about ourselves or about the world. And as we soften and befriend, we discover that what we previously believed to be so true and solid and enduring actually softens in the light of awareness. Ajahn Chah once said, a great Thai teacher once said, when everything has fallen away that can possibly fall away, then what remains is true. That's a very interesting way of putting this practice. When everything has fallen away that can possibly fall away, then what remains I think we come closer to a sense of authenticity by holding that, that question in a really open way, 
what can fall away? You know, what are the beliefs, what are the images, what are the fears, what are the assumptions? What is it that can fall away? Don't get rid of. But what can fall away? Sometimes it's a process that surprises us. We don't even know how many beliefs we have, you know. Sometimes we can come into a retreat and, you know, we'll just find ourselves saying, well, I'm a very agitated person. In every moment. You know, we might discover, much to our surprise, a moment of calmness. Where's the agitated person? Can it fall away? We might define ourselves as a very, as a very fearful, a very self-conscious person. Suddenly find ourselves being able to express something that is really close to our heart. Where is the fearful person? We might define ourselves as a very knowledgeable person. Yes, I know everything about myself. You know, there's nothing left to be known. And suddenly we're in this quandary of not knowing at all what's going on. You know, where is a knowledgeable person? We keep surprising ourselves, and that's so good. It works in all ways. It does take, actually, a remarkable patience and a remarkable openness. Ask to stay present, to let things fall away. You know, in that process of falling away, in a way it's a process of disappearing. The person we thought ourselves to be is disappearing. It's becoming more transparent. It's becoming more open, more fluid, more elastic, more flexible. It becomes more and more hard, uh, more and more difficult to come up with these one-liners. You know, I'm like this. Yes? Or I'm like that. I was like that. I will be like that. It becomes more and more difficult to actually believe in the kind of credibility of some of these descriptions. We're learning how to disappear. And much to our surprise, we discover that's not really a bad experience. It's actually pretty neat to not be defined by anything. The wonderful line I read that said, when I could no longer conceptualize myself, the healing began. It's pretty inspiring. When I could no longer conceptualize myself, the healing begins. We do start to see that every time we have one of these one-liners, these judgments, these conclusions, in a way, it that conclusion or that definition, it sort of interferes with the process of unfoldment or it interrupts the process of unfoldment. Our definition actually becomes a kind of prison. I mean, we could sort of try and imagine what it would be like for ourselves, what our life would be like if we didn't define ourselves by anything at all. Not by our bodies, not by our mind, not by our past, not by our fears, not by our roles, not by our identities. If we were able to say, I am, and just leave it there. I am, and just leave it there, with nothing added on to it. We were not defined by being a mother or a father or a daughter or a son or a partner or a parent. 
And yet, even as we're not defined by any of these, that we feel free to be all of them. That we feel free within them. Whenever we have one of those one-liners, we take a position in the world that's stuck, that feels solid. It's a position that's in relationship to many other positions. So sometimes we have to defend it, sometimes we have to assert it, sometimes we're afraid of it being taken away from us, sometimes we look at the ways that we can uh, reinforce it. Yet there is a way of living within all this fluidity of ourselves, our bodies, our minds, our feelings, our roles, our, our relationships, and a way of living within them in which they communicate everything that we understand to be authentic and free and true. And that's such a curious paradox in our life. To be in and not identified with. It's having a fluidity like a river, like a wind, and yet at the same time having the steadfastness of a mountain. And those two are not contradictory. And we learn about the path of visibility and invisibility here on retreat in our own journeys. And that learning begins when we take our seat in the meditation room and we lean upon nothing. And we trust in taking our seat in the meditation room, we trust our capacity to deepen and to learn and to open. I mean, there's something that is very deeply symbolic about how we sit. I mean, it's not actually an accident, you know, that we don't have reclining chairs and mattresses and masseurs and, you know, waiters and waitresses, you know, moving through the hall. There is actually, I mean, sometimes there's very physical needs, you know, where we need to lean, but that's something quite different. When we learn to sit as we sit here in a way, it's a kind of symbol of learning to be alone, of learning to rely upon ourselves, upon learning not to lean on anything. You know, when I first started doing retreats, the first thing I would do every time I went in on a retreat is I would open the door and I would look for the nearest wall. That's in my place. You know, and, uh, you know, I felt really hard done by if I didn't get a piece of wall. As a matter of fact, I never did not get a piece of wall. I always got a piece of wall. And, you know, I was what I called a wall hugger. You know, that was my role in a meditation room, was to be a wall hugger. And I thought at the time that I was being kind to myself. You know, that I was, remember, this is quite apart from any sort of organic, physical problems that need support. I thought I was being kind to myself. I thought I was lessening pain. I wasn't, actually. That, that wasn't what I was doing. But this was actually a lesson I needed to learn about myself. The wall for me was about fear. I believed it was supporting me, but actually it was supporting my fear and my fear of being unsupported and devastated. You know, and then, of course, as it would naturally happen, you know, eventually I went on a retreat and I had no wall. And propelled very reluctantly into this 
position in the meditation room where I was unsupported. And for me, that was a very interesting experience to see that what was that was like and how it immediately set up this, you know, this fear of devastation, this fear of being without, this fear of everything falling apart. And yet we have many of us our own different walls in life, don't we? It's not just the walls in a meditation room. We have our own, all of us, many of us have our own favorite wall that we fear that if we are without this, we will be devastated, we will be bereft, we will be deprived in some way. Sometimes, you know, so how we sit is a symbol of our lives. Sometimes we see we lean out of habit, sometimes we lean out of fear, sometimes we lean upon someone because it's a way of becoming visible to others or through a role or through an identity. And yet we lean on things that crumble, don't we? We lean on things that crumble. And sometimes as we lean, we become invisible to ourselves. Now, learning how not to lean, it doesn't mean that we reject our relationships or that we quit our jobs or we throw our children out of the house. It it doesn't mean any of those things. What we learn is to be free within all of those. What it means to be with and not to lean upon. We learn to live in a way in which we are not devastated by loss. And that frees us, liberates us, to be wholehearted in everything we do. You know, we're never free to be wholehearted within anything that we lean upon when we fear its loss. We see that every time we lean, we somehow put ourselves at risk the risk of resentment, the risk of deprivation, the risk of being without, and that each time we take our seat in life, alone and steady, we take our seat amidst the whirlwind of our lives, listening and receiving, rejecting nothing, but trusting our capacity to receive and embrace and be our own refuge. And the last, some of the last words of the Buddha is, be a lamp unto yourself, be a refuge unto yourself. Hold fast to the truth as a lamp. Hold fast to the truth as a refuge. Look not to anyone or anything outside of yourself as a refuge. We learn the lessons of visibility and strength and freedom through the medium of awareness. We listen inwardly. We're eager to learn from ourselves, eager to receive ourselves. We're eager to listen to many of the voices and the stories and the histories and patterns we carry. And we learn the difference between receiving and taking hold of or being lost within. Listening to ourselves with receptivity is like listening to the whole of an orchestra. Listening with holding or grasping is like only wanting to listen to one instrument. And we miss the entire symphony. When we learn to listen, we are also taught by. It's not so much a path of doing or fixing or perfecting, but a path of a natural falling away. A natural revealing. We discover the remarkable silence that there is in listening. 
doesn't mean that nothing arises. There are many voices that arise. But the remarkable silence in not holding onto anything at all. The silence actually of being no one. In the Upanishads it said that those who leave here knowing who they are and what they truly yearn for will have freedom everywhere. If we take a couple of moments quietly together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.